0: So as we come to chapter 24, we are kind of continuing the story of what we looked at last week. And of course, as we just read last week, we find that Saul, who is the king of Israel, who is currently pursuing David, who is the anointed king of Israel. And up until this point, uh, Saul was a king who the people begged for, but was not precisely the Lord's idea of a king. Saul was given every opportunity to succeed as a king. He was given the prescriptions of rules and regulations for a king uh, from the Lord. But yet, Saul determined to go his own way. He wanted to do his own thing. And he became increasingly jealous of David. And so much so that now he's been trying to kill David for a good amount of time. He's been chasing him all over Israel. And it seems uh, now that uh, David in this passage has found a bit of refuge in a cave and as he's there we see that Saul is back pursuing him again and Saul goes in to uh, use the restroom in the cave and he's in there and uh, his men see them and they're trying to convince uh, Saul or excuse me David to go and kill Saul this is the first time that Saul is separated from his men. He doesn't have the whole army to back him. He can't see. He's making his way in out of, the, out of the bright sunlight into this dark cave. And David and his men, they've been sitting in there. Their eyes are used to this darkness and they've been adjusted. They have the element of surprise and they are urging David to go and kill Saul. To end this once and for all and then uh, they will be free of running. But yet David refuses. He refuses to do this. He doesn't kill Saul, but instead he goes down and he cuts off a piece of uh, Saul's robe. And immediately we're told that David's heart uh, it, it struck him. It convicted him of this action because, as we said last week, this was uh, implicating David in this attack. Uh, In attacking, if you will, the Lord's anointed, and David wholeheartedly uh, up until this point wanted the Lord to be the one to remove Saul when it was time and to institute him as king, Uh, and he didn't want to force his way into the kingdom. He believed the promises of God that they would come to pass, that the Lord promised David that he would be the king of Israel, that he would rule and reign over Israel, but yet he didn't want to take it by force. He didn't want to make it his own, and yet Uh, Here, he slips a little bit in his resolve and he draws near to Saul. But instead of killing him, he cuts off a corner of his robe. And we said last week that what this meant was that it invalidated Saul's uh, kingdom in a sense and that he was no longer able to wear that priestly robe as it had been torn, as it was ripped. He was not able to uh, put that back on because it would have, uh, you know, uh, been sullied. Uh, but then also, uh, it was a little bit, of, a, in a sense, of a symbolic transfer of the kingdom to David. As David takes a bit of the portion there, it's kind of this almost this idea that, that the kingdom is, in a sense, being transferred into David's possession. And as this happens, uh, David realizes that he should not have done this, and he repents, and he has to spend the rest of this portion fighting his own men off because they want to kill Saul. They see that David didn't actually go through with it. He went and he only cut off this portion of the robe. He didn't go through with it, and they're like, we'll kill him. They wanted to go after him, but David, it says, persuaded his men. And as we said last week, that word persuaded it doesn't necessarily mean he was this great uh, philosopher and coming with great law, Logic and saying, well, you know, guys, let me uh, pull up my uh, PowerPoint presentation. Here's the reasons why we should not do this. But rather, this word "persuaded" here uh, in in the original language actually means that he tore them apart. He he had to tear them apart. He was he was dividing them. It was this almost he was almost brought to the point where he was threatening them. Like, if you do this, I will kill you. Like it started to come to, you know, the place where it started to get really tense here. And David has to step in to defend this man who wanted to kill him. He has to stand in the middle between this mob of people who want to destroy Saul and uh, Saul who wants to destroy David. He finds himself in this ironic position defending uh, the same person who wanted to kill him. And so, as we come to the text this morning, we see that Saul now just exits the cave, and David uh, takes action as the result of uh, this situation. He capitalizes on this opportunity. We read in verse 8, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage And so the first interaction that we find here is that Saul has gone just a brief distance out of the cave, not enough to go back to his troops completely, but also David is not exactly in a position to escape as well. And so there's a bit of trust here on David's part, trusting the Lord that Saul's not going to just rush back in there and fight them and call all of the men, but he confronts Saul as he exits the cave, and David uses these words his first words to Saul in quite some time that demonstrate his character his heart what he has always said from the beginning he leads with this he calls after Saul my lord the king this is the the highest level phrasing that he could use for addressing Saul like no up until this point he is not recorded using these words in this particular way but he doesn't come out and say yo Saul like What's up? I'm over here, right? He comes out with like the highest, most formal recognition of his office and authority. He doesn't put himself and say he doesn't come with insults. He doesn't come in just a, a even a particular place of uh, this diplomatic speak, but rather this is language of submission. My Lord, the King. He recognizes his role in association to Saul. Saul is still the king. And David makes sure that Saul understands that David is recognizing his authority. Even more so, he bows with his face to the earth and paid homage. Now, this isn't just like kind of the one 2 quick bow, like, yo, what's up, hey, right? But like he's kind of down on the ground, putting himself in a vulnerable position as well. He's, you know, almost laying on the ground. He's not looking, he's not kind of like, hey, I'm on the ground and I'm kind of like looking up at you, but rather he's face down and so he can't even see as Saul is approaching. He's demonstrating, I am not a threat to you. I am not coming to attack you. I am not in a position where I'm going to uh, come against you, but rather I am humbling myself before you. Verse 9, before Saul can even respond, David responds, uh, or he continues, he said to Saul... Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Now, a couple things are happening here. David is calling out the company that Saul keeps. That he's got all these people around him who are up to no good and who are telling Saul that David's after you. Who are taking advantage of Saul's uh, bloodthirsty behavior here who were taking advantage of the opportunity, who were yes men, who were surrounding him and saying, go ahead, Saul, let's go after him, let's kill him, he's a threat to you. But at the same time, what David is also doing is he is exercising, in a sense, the uh, practice of love covering a multitude of sins. Because it's Saul who is the one that initiated this entire thing. These other men were not the ones who were like, hey, I think David might be after you. It was Saul who began this hunt in the first place. And David is showing proper respect, but he's also not willing to just come straight out and call out Saul and be like, Yo, why are you trying to kill me? He's saying, there are people around you. The idea, the attitude, the atmosphere is that you are wanting to attack me. But then he continues in verse 10, and he declares his own motive. He says, here's what happened as a result of you going into this cave right now. Behold this day, verse 10, verse 10, Your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, by contrast, David said, I have men around me. And they said, you go kill Saul. But I said, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to act in, uh, in order with God's character. As I understand God's character, as I understand his law, I'm not going to listen to the people who are around me who are giving me advice that goes against God's laws, that go against God's uh, direction for life. But rather, I'm going to obey the Lord even when those people who have been with me my whole life, who have been with me in the toughest times, when they're giving me advice, I'm going to say, I'm not going to listen to you. It's important that we understand this, this contrast between Saul and David here, because this is the exact situation that we're going to go through in life, right? You're going to go through seasons in life where things are going to get tough, and people are going to give you advice, and you're going to want to listen to them because they know you the best. They've been with you. They've seen your experiences. They've seen what you've gone through. I will tell you 100%, if that advice is not biblical and God-honoring, like, you should just absolutely not listen to them. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Because good advice is not the same as what God is intending to do. Again, as we always say, we're not looking for good ideas. We're not looking for logical ideas. We're looking to understand what God is doing and going with him in his direction. It's a huge difference. We're not looking for what makes the most sense, what's going to give us the big biggest return on our investment. We're not looking for those things. Those things are nice, but they're not the goal. It'd be great if those things paid off, but that's not the goal. We are going where Jesus is going, and we're seeking to understand where Jesus is going. We're seeking to head down this path, this trajectory. We have to know where he's going. And so we have to be a people who are willing both to give sound biblical advice that exalts Christ, that seeks to, to find out where he's going and to encourage others to join him in what he's doing. We need to be people who are willing to give that advice and we need people who are willing to look for it and to receive that advice. Now, it's one thing to be aware of that, but then there's also, when you're in the midst of it, when you're in that season, when you're in a, in a place where you're looking for direction and insight and wisdom and people are willing to give that to you and it seems like it makes sense, there's also additionally a component where you really will want to please them and take that advice. Because if you don't listen to them, then what it says about them is, well, what's wrong with my advice? What are you saying about me? Right? So then it becomes a component of justifying your relationship with them and validating that relationship. And so you almost lapse into a season where you begin to want to do what they say in order to keep and maintain the peace in that friendship, in that relationship. But our identity is in Christ. It's not in our relationship with others. It's with Jesus. And so we have to discover what he's doing and where he's going. And so as you're discussing these things, as you're moving through these things, we need to have discussions with those people who are giving us advice. And as they give us advice, we have to ask, does this help us pursue Jesus? Does this help us go where he's going? That's our counter to all things that come into our our field of view. As all things come in, we have to filter them. Is it something that needs to be outright rejected because it's evil and sinful? Because it's, uh, you know, unwise and foolish? Is it something that just needs to to be completely dismissed? Is it something that has the opportunity to come in and for us to uh, receive with thanksgiving? Like, this is sound biblical advice. Or is it also something that needs to come in that's like, this is kind of like in the ballpark and it's roughly reasonable advice but needs to be redeemed like I see where you're going with it but we need to flip that on its head and look at it through a biblical perspective we need to see how the gospel applies to this and learn how to use that in our lives and most of the time those uh Ideas where we're redeeming advice or where we're putting into practice something that could be good and used for God's glory, that has to happen within the community of believers because we need the collective group, the collective membership of the body of Christ to weigh in and say, well, see it from my perspective. See where I'm coming from. Let me tell you how this could be used. We have to take those opportunities and not just receive everything as if it's, you know, amazing and great. Even well-intentioned, you know, Advice, Even well-intentioned things are not necessarily going to be useful. We have to filter all of these things through the gospel. And David, he does this. He tells Saul, I didn't listen to my men. They told me to kill you and I said, no. Why? Because he's firm in his understanding of the scriptures. He's firm in his understanding of his relationship with God. He doesn't say because their plan was stupid. He doesn't say anything other than the scriptures say that I should not touch you. God's word says that I shouldn't be one out to kill you. Behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, David treats the king honorably, properly, not because of anything that Saul had done. His relationship with obedience to the king has nothing to do with whether Saul earned it or not. He's obeying the Lord primarily. Saul obviously has been trying to kill him. If there was somebody who probably deserved to die, it probably would have been Saul. But David said, I'm obeying the Lord. I'm not obeying the law of the land to just uh, or, you know, this this law of vengeance that I'm trying to just destroy those who are destroying me. But rather, his obedience is connected to his understanding of what the Lord has done. The Lord has spoken and said, do not touch my anointed. Verse 11, he continues, see, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So now again, David doubles down even further. Before he says, my king, my lord, now he continues and he says, see my father. He's using this paternal language. He's he's using this especially as, remember, Saul has refused to call him anything other than the son of Jesse. He doesn't call him David. He doesn't call him my son. He just outright refuses. This has been going on for ever since Saul started to try to kill him. But David presses him even further. My Lord, my King, he says, my father. Now he's using this. This is his father-in-law, actually. So he's using this language. He refers to him in this loving and respectful manner. But then he says, look, here's now the evidence. See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Now, what this is, is it's a demonstration for Saul. And it's a demonstration for David of his actual belief of God's sovereign rule over all things. He says, look, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take the kingdom by force. But if the Lord wanted to remove Saul, he will remove him in his time. He's demonstrating his sovereignty, the Lord's sovereignty over this situation. But now as Saul hears this, as Saul realizes this for the the first time, that David was so close that he could have killed him, I imagine that this brought him back to a previous situation in his life. If you look back at 1 Samuel 15, we find in that passage there The prophet Samuel is rebuking Saul for this hard-hearted disobedience of the Lord. That Saul has continued to disobey. And as Samuel's like, I'm getting out of here. This prophet's like, I'm leaving. We find that Saul seized the skirt, 1 Samuel 15, verse 27, the skirt of his robe and it tore. So here we find this tearing of a robe here by Saul tearing it off of Samuel. Samuel. Now in verse 28, we read, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better of, better than you. And now as we come to the passage, as, as Saul sees David standing there holding this tattered piece of robe, it's like, oh shoot, he's got the kingdom. It was torn away and given to another, and here's David holding it up saying, I've got it. I could have come and taken it from you but the Lord has given it to me. He has delivered it into my hand. This is connected in Saul's mind to his continued history of disobedience. And so now, as David confronts Saul with this torn robe, he's got to be reminded of this incident. It's got to be lingering there in the back of his mind because he was told, it's going to be given to a neighbor of yours who's just outright better than you, right? Like, you don't forget those words. Somebody's better than you. It's going to be given to them. Now, David finishes his opening remarks here with this appeal now to the Lord. He presents his case, but he doesn't look to Saul for judgment. He doesn't look for Saul to rule on this, but he ends his little section here in uh, his opening statement By looking to the Lord, by relying on the Lord. In verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So David doesn't try to find security in convincing Saul or persuading Saul or changing his heart. But instead, he casts his entire case before the Lord. He says, here's all the things that I've said. The Lord should be the judge between us both. I'm not going to try to avenge myself. I'm not going to try to come at you for all of these wrongdoings. But he says, I'm going to trust the Lord, that the Lord will bring judgment if it's needed. Now, even in this, David is being increasingly gracious. Right? You're going to miss this if, 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 you don't, um, if we don't dig a little bit deeper here. But even in this, David is just being absolutely radically generous in trying to protect Saul. Why? Well, by trying to kill David, who is absolutely innocent, uh, if Saul becomes successful, then this is an explicit violation of, of, of the Old Testament laws and the Torah. In Exodus 23 verse 7 we read this keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for i will not acquit the wicked so in the back of david's mind he knows the scriptures he's like if saul kills me there will be no forgiveness like this is not going to happen this is going to go bad for him and so in even trying to to put this case before him to get him to stop, he's trying to give an opportunity for Saul to avoid punishment, to avoid the consequences of this circumstance. What a generous approach. He's not only trying to save, David's trying not only to save his own life, but he's also trying to, to save this judgment that's, that would be brought upon Saul. He's pleading not for himself only, but for the life of his enemy. He continues in verse 13 using uh, this analogy a, a proverb as the proverbs of the ancients says out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you after whom has the king of Israel come out after whom do you pursue after a dead dog after a flea so david comes to this point where he's like look you shouldn't come against me you shouldn't try to i'm going to let the lord judge between us but also I'm not, I haven't been out to get you. So out of the wicked comes wickedness. Wickedness did not come out of me. I didn't kill you. So why are you pursuing me? Now, it's a little bit of like a double meaning there too, because he's also saying like, well, Saul, like you're you're trying to kill me and I haven't done anything. So like maybe you're the wicked. Like wickedness is coming out of the wicked. He's kind of using this in a in a double move almost. But then he also brings this comparison. He's like, I don't even know why you're after me. And David compares himself to just these lowly creatures. He's like, I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. Like, I'm just like this really minuscule uh, you know, creature. Why are you even wasting your time on me? And he finishes... In verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David comes back to his original point. I'm committing this to the Lord's judgment. I'm going to leave this in his hands. Now we read in verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Immediately, it seems as if this has broken through. Because now, Saul leads with this new reference to David. No longer calling him the son of Jesse, he once again claims David as his own son and uses the name David. As soon as he finished speaking, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. It seems as if This demonstration has impacted him, has hit him deeply. Because he continues in verse 17, he says, He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul recognizes what has happened. And he sees the contrast of David's character next to his own character. And he says, you have acted honorably. You have done well, but I have repaid you with evil. And as this hits him, as he understands this, he's weeping and he, he, he's lifting up his voice. And then he comes to this recognition, almost in this confirmation of earlier prophecy in verse 20. He says this, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom shall be established in your hand. So he says, you shall surely be king. This is Saul's first moment where he has publicly admitted that David will be the king. He's admitted this finally. Earlier, Jonathan said, even my father knows that you're going to be king. But now we get Saul saying it himself. I know that you will be king. Not only does Saul know that David will be king, Saul also knows that the kingdom will be established, that it will be planted, that it will actually flourish, that it will come into its uh, proper state under David. He realizes that he cannot do what David is intended to do. And as he realizes that this rule will continue, then this prompts him to make a request. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So Saul, thinking to the future, realizing that like he's, that David will be the king, that the kingdom will flourish, he looks to the continuation of his lineage. Now, this was a common request. This is something that, I mean, this request wasn't common, but this was a common practice in ancient times where as new kings and rulers came into, uh, into govern in a particular region or area or they, uh, one nation would overthrow another nation, they would go through and they would destroy the entire royal lineage of the previous kings so that there, would no be, there, there wouldn't be a threat, there wouldn't be another claim to the throne. There wouldn't be someone who could challenge and say, I have a right to be on the throne. And so they would go through and they would just absolutely destroy everybody from the previous lineage so that uh, there wouldn't be anybody left. That name would be completely erased. They would see to it that there would be nobody who could claim that they were deserving of uh, honor, that they were deserving of rule. Right? We see this even taking place uh, in the in in a basic sense, all the way in the uh, in the earliest sections of the Book of Matthew, right? As these uh, as these wise men, the Magi, come and visit King Herod. There, they tell him, "Hey, we're following the star, and we're told that there's a king who's born. There's a king who's going to be born, and." Herod, he makes up like this whole thing about like oh yeah, I want to go worship him and stuff. But what he's actually trying to do is he's realizing like there's somebody who's going to be promised king, like I got to go and destroy this future king. I've got to see to it that this line completely ends, that it's torn apart. He wants to make sure that there's no new king rising in Israel. And so Hare goes about trying to kill all the kids, and the male kids under like a certain age. He's just out to get everybody because he doesn't want this lineage to happen. He sees that there's a threat. It's not just that like, oh, like somebody had a kid. It's that this is a royal, somebody who could rule, somebody who could take his authority and that anybody who would challenge his authority has to die. And so this is what Saul's getting at here. He's like if David's going to rule, he could just go through and clean house and just like start just destroying like my entire family. He could be erasing me out of the history books and any future that they would have. And so he asks David, "Can you preserve my family? Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me." and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, verse 22. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Like, that went by pretty quick there, right? Saul makes this whole, like, hey, please do this for me. Let's make this happen. Like, I'm really worried about this. And David's like, yeah, no problem. And then, like, they go their separate ways. Saul goes back uh, to Gibeah, and David and his men go up to the stronghold. What in the world happened so quickly there? Well, if you recall, David's able to agree to this oath wholeheartedly with Saul because, like, all it is is reconfirming an oath that he already made with Jonathan in chapter 20, right? Right? He, that's all he's doing. He's reconfirming what he's already said. So hes he already had his answer prepared. He already was in this uh, frame of mind. He was already somebody who had dealt with this, and he was already in position to show his faithfulness of character, that of course he's going to continue. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan um. asks him him in verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See, this is what Jonathan was worried about. This is what Saul was worried about. This destruction of their name and their house out of the kingdom. This began, of course with the tearing of this robe, right? It began with uh, Saul reaching out and ripping Samuel's robe earlier in chapter 15. It continues with David going and cutting the robe of Saul in our text this morning, invalidating these kingdoms and transferring this kingdom of power. And they are worried about their names being torn out of the history books, out of the kingdom, out of the house of the king. Do not cut your steadfast love from my house forever. Right? There's this eternality that they're concerned about. You see, Herod had the right idea. He was coming after Jesus because Jesus is a rival king. He's coming after Jesus because he is a rival king. He wants to destroy him. But see, for Herod, he didn't realize, and the people of Israel didn't realize, that Jesus' kingdom wasn't just to take over this physical area of Israel. And Jesus wasn't so concerned about ruling and reigning in that perspective. But rather, as Jesus grew in obedience and stature with man and God, as he went through life, as he observed the rule and reign of the Roman Empire, as he saw the way that his people lived out the scriptures, as they went their own way and made their own gods and followed in their own idolatry, the idea that he understood, that he saw there, was that there was still a continuing of rebellion. That there was still an idea that the people who were under these nations, whether it would be the Jewish people, or whether it would be the Roman people, the Greeks, those who lived in this area, that they were all They were all jockeying to have their own king. That's how they ended up with Saul in the first place. They wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. But before that, God was explicitly said to be their king. And they've gone their own way and we see what it has gotten them. They have received the fruit of having an earthly king. But now Jesus comes, knowing that that nobody is getting what they need from this king, and he comes to live out his life in such a way so that he might be enthroned, that he might be king. But as he goes to, uh, as he grows in stature with man and God, as he lives out his life obediently upon the earth, he continues to 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 have people rise up against him as enemies. He continues to have those arise against him who want to destroy him. Whether it would be Rome because he's gaining in popularity and power, and they don't want the Jewish people to start to riot and create a revolution, whether it would be the religious leaders because they are worried that they that he will take away their place and their nation, as it says in John uh, 18. It it could be any number of things, but Jesus has all these enemies rise up. And they rise up because of his explicit claim. And he is the king. And so now we have the king who has come and everybody else who wants to bring their own king, to make their own king, to be their own king. There can only be one king. And so what happens there is that Jesus realizes this. He knows this from eternity past that this is the situation that he is going to be in, that we are going to be in, and that he's the only one who can fix it. And so instead of coming and tearing us apart, his enemies apart, he comes and himself is torn apart. He is destroyed on our behalf so that we might be clothed in his righteousness, that we might receive the whole of his robes you see when we look at saul's kingdom we see that samuel's robe the priestly robe is torn when we see saul the first king of israel's robe that is torn but when we see jesus there at the cross his robe is not torn because his kingdom is not parted it stays intact they 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 uh you know auction it off or they they, uh, gamble it off there. He cannot be torn. His body is torn physically, but his kingdom remains whole. It remains intact. Those people needed that robe. They need to be clothed in his righteousness, not their own works, not their own way, but in his work, in his perfection. You see, because Jesus is a different king. He's not a king who, when he is enthroned, when he pays for our sin at the cross, when his blood is shed for us, when that crown of thorns is pushed upon his head, that he says, Now I'm going to go out and slay all of my enemies who have opposed me. I'm going to erase everyone out of my house. But rather, he's a king who dies for his enemies. A king who gives his life, not so his enemies can be cut off from his house forever, but that. So his enemies' names can be written in his book of life. So they can be recorded forever. So that we can be welcomed into his house. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were far off. We were enemies. We were away from him, but we have been brought near by him. But now, he continu- Paul continues in verse 18 of chapter 2, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Enemies brought in, enemies brought near, enemies whose names are recorded in the book of life when we trust in him for salvation. He doesn't erase our names, but he remembers our names. He remembers every situation and circumstance. He sees everything that we have gone through or will go through. And he said, I'm the only one that can be enough for you. So you can create your own kingdom, but your kingdom will fall. His kingdom remains whole. His kingdom is good. And we're invited into it. And so we rest as people who are clothed in his righteousness, rejoicing in the fact that he was torn for us so that we might not be torn, that we might enter into his kingdom whole and find rest in his house. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the fullness of the gift that you've given us at the cross. You've paid for our sin. You've cleansed us. You've made us whole. And Lord, we we can't say thank you enough. We rejoice that you were raised for our justification. We see you as the risen Lord, exalted and leading your church. And Lord, we know that you're the only one that can, can satisfy us. You're the only one that can fix us. You're, you're the only one who can meet our deepest needs. And so we want to give you our lives. We want to follow you with the entirety of our being. We want to, to come under your authority. And so this morning, we, we acknowledge you as our Lord and our King. We acknowledge you as our Savior and our Redeemer. We acknowledge you as our closest friend. And so, Lord, draw us near to you. Help us to remember the depth of your sacrifice. Help us to realize how much you love us, that you would make your enemies your family. What a mind-blowing concept, that you would be a king that is so good and so generous that we would find life in your house that you would provide everything that we need. And so, Lord, we want to respond to you with thanksgiving and worship now. We love you. Amen.